Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dorr, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're really honored to have Dr. Brenton Sullivan on the show to talk about his new book, Building a Religious Empire, Tibetan Buddhism, Bureaucracy, and the Rise of the Gelugpa, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021. Dr. Sullivan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Dagena. Thank you, and congratulations on getting this wonderful book published. Um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in inter-Asian studies and particularly in Tibetan Buddhism. Sure. I'm a assistant professor of Buddhism and East Asian religion at Colgate University in central New York. I think the easiest way, or the maybe I should say the most important factor for me becoming interested in Tibetan Buddhism was my time as a master's student at the University of Kansas and my study of the Chinese monk Fatsun, uh, the Republican period monk Fatsun. Um, when I was a student there, I was working with a well-renowned scholar of Chinese Buddhism, Dan Stevenson, and he introduced me early on to the Republican period monk Tai Xu. And uh, Tai Xu is sort of notorious for his really big ideas about how to reform Chinese Buddhism in the early 20th century. And among his many ideas was to establish seminaries for the study of Buddhism and its various canonical languages in different parts of of Republican China. And one of those seminaries was the Hanzang Jiali Yuan, or the Sino-Tibetan Buddhist Institute in Chongqing. And so I... I went on to focus on that seminary and on the monk uh, Fa Zuen, who was the director of that seminary in the 20s and 30s, um, actually through the 40s as well. I was helped along the way by Gray Tuttle at Columbia. He, in his first book, um, Tibetan Buddhism and the Making of Modern China, he, he talked about that institute and about Fa Zuen. Um, he had already kind of blazed the trail to and digging up a lot of archival materials on that institute. But anyway, uh, he, he helped me get into that subject matter. I, I ended up studying that. And I think that kind of cued my interest in um, cross-cultural communication because Fadzuan traveled to Tibet and came back to China, became the most prolific translator of Tibetan Buddhism into Chinese. Um my interest in translation and also my, my interest in institutions because this this institute, this Hansang Jialian was just that, it was an institute and kind of always had an interest in how organizations function, what makes for a successful collectivity. Um, and, and I think that's kind of how I got interested in Tibetan Buddhism to begin with. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's a very um, kind of often overlooked. However, a lot of really wonderful scholars like you and uh, Gray Tuttle, of course, has been covering this. Um, but this connection, right, between Republican China and their reform Buddhism and also Tibetan Buddhism, their fascination with Tibetan Buddhism. So it's really great to hear that um, you're, you know, you started um, your interest in the fields uh, with that particularly. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, a lot of people come to it via South Asia, I think. Uh, and, and yeah, I was instead in China studying Chinese, Chinese Buddhism and history. And uh, yeah, it, it really piqued my interest and yeah, went from there. Where, or I guess I came from China, worked my way westward rather than starting, say, in Dharamsala and working my way northward. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so before we actually dig into the book, can you maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to write Building a Religious Empire? How did the project start? Sure. I mentioned how my master's work was on this institute, on this seminary, and an interest I had, kind of a natural interest in social organizations and communities. Along with that, 
I had a kind of natural um, response to interest in theories of Max Weber and his followers, people like Robert Bella, Amitai Etzioni, and an interest in just understanding what makes for a successful organization, what is an intentional community. I had also, as a PhD student at University of Virginia, started spending my summers in Amdo in northeastern Tibet. And so I was already looking into, well, I was confronted with lots and lots of Gayluk monasteries, Gayluk Buddhist monasteries. And so I was confronted with these, these monasteries and big monasteries with long histories. And I wanted to understand the histories of those places. And so that kind of started me off um, on studying the history of big Gayluk monasteries, especially those located in what is today Qinghai province, Gansu province. I should also mention that I was as a graduate student in a seminar with Curtis Schaefer on the Dalai Lamas. And it was there that I first came across the genre known as Jaik or monastic constitutions. And so those, those combinations of a natural interest in social organizations and their success, uh, my summers in Amdo, and then that introduction to Jaik, monastic constitutions, I think are what took me to this book, um, Building a Religious Empire. So yeah, I wanted to understand how it was that the Gayluk school of all schools of Tibetan Buddhism came out on top. Why are they the ones that are most successful in terms of their distribution across the Tibetan plateau and Mongolia, in terms of their size and political influence, their renown today in the, in the uh, form of the Dalai Lama and others. And for me, it was the monasteries, right? these massive, influential, powerful institutions that were in need of explanation. And the Jaik, the monastic constitutions, were a way into that to try and understand the functioning of the monasteries, what actually went on with them, or at least what was prescribed to go on within them, the interest that Gayluk Lamas had in their own monasteries. And that is, I think, the beginning of this particular book. Thank you. And these huge uh, monastery networks, right, that are very trans-regional and even transnational, um, you know, in the 20th century, were, you know, very thoroughly discussed in your book. And maybe for some of our listeners um, who might be tuning in and who might, might not be very familiar with Tibetan Buddhism and the Galuk tradition, can you briefly tell us a little bit about the history of Galuk Buddhism and how influential just it was in Inner Asia and East Asia? Sure. The Galuk school literally translates as the school of virtue, and it came to see itself as just that, a reform school of Buddhism that took very seriously monastic discipline and the monastic um, exegetical philosophical scriptures. And that monastic practice should be rooted in those things. The, the founder, Zonkaba from the 14th century, um, he, this is the, the, the figure credited with founding this school of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, He's seen as a kind of philosophical genius, but he's also, importantly, a major institution builder. And he and his disciples founded what came to be the largest monasteries on the Tibetan plateau in Lhasa. And so this is a school that then went on in later centuries, beginning especially in the 17th century, to then spread from Lhasa, from central Tibet, across the Tibetan plateau into places like Kham, eastern Tibet, and Sichuan, um, especially Amdo, northeastern Tibet. And then um, in the 17th, eight, especially 18th centuries and later into Mongolian areas as well. And of course, it had a major presence at the court of the Qing emperor in Beijing. It had major connections and alliances with the powers in Inner Asia, such as the Oirat, um, these 
um, sometimes called Western Mongols, although they're not Mongols, technically located in Inner Asia. They, they had ties with all the major political powers at that, at that time and came to thereby have a major influence on the politics, the ideology, and the religious practices across that vast expanse of land. And today, of course, the Gaeluk, even though people might not have heard of the name Gaeluk, they know often the, the name or the face of the Dalai Lama, who's the most celebrated symbolic head of that school. And his prominence on the world stage is, I would argue, largely due to this historic process of monastery building and network, as you said, network building across Inner Asia. Yeah, wow. And your book also discusses Gilgit Buddhism as a religious empire, right? So in what ways was and or is Gilgit Buddhism a religious empire? And what kind of new insights about Buddhism and religion in general, actually, can we get from using this framework of empire? What makes it a, an empire, or at least a religious empire, and, and there is a qualifier on there, um, is I think, first and foremost, that the Gelupa had an expansion, expansionist program and intention. They were bent on spreading. And they weren't satisfied just with being where they were um, in central Tibet, but in spreading across the known world at that time. And what another criteria of empires is longevity. If it doesn't last very long, it's not often seen as an empire in retrospect. Uh, well, the Gelupa have been around for several hundred years. Um, another feature of empires is they often have a memory of power. They're backwards looking to past periods of triumph, political or military triumph, and, and make claims to that, draw ties to that period. And of course, that's what the Dalai Lama and his government did as well, looking back to the imperial period of Tibet in the 7th, 8th, ninth centuries. It doesn't fit, I don't think, every aspect, every definitional criterion of, of an empire. And I imagine some will take issue with using the term empire. But I think by using it as an analytical term, it actually pushes us to ask really important questions. First and foremost, how did the Gelugpa do it? How did they become the most powerful religious group across Tibet? In Mongolia. And actually, the key term for me for this book is not empire, but bureaucracy. I think the answer to that question of how they did it is actually, uh, in part, bureaucracy. Thank you. And on bureaucracy, um, I mean, a lot of scholars in the past, right, have been um, discussing, right, the Gelupak success, and they're sort of attributing the success to their either philosophical sophistications or to their abilities to create alliances with powerful Mongol and Manchu patrons. Um, but your book, right, using um, textual materials such as the monastic constitutions or Chaik's, your book actually argues that the Gelupak's proclivity for and excellence in bureaucracy Right, is an equal, if not more, important key to their rise to power. Um, so tell us a little bit more about bureaucracy. How did it help to help um, the Gelupas to build this religious empire? Yeah, bureaucracy, I think we often cringe or shy away from the use of the term, especially when talking about Buddhism or religion. Uh, you know, it has it has in people's minds images of, you know, dead-eyed functionaries at a DMV who don't want to process your paperwork. Um, although I should mention our DMV here locally is actually highly efficient and very good here in Madison County, New York. So there's a shout out to them. But, um, you know, bureaucracy is also uh, leads to efficiency. I mean, the, the kind of, I'm, I'm not an advocate for bureaucracy, let me be, be clear, but the advocates for it would say it leads to efficiency it leads to a, a level of transparency, or at least the conceit of, of transparency, where one is free from um, the whims of any one individual. Um, one is free from these kind of more personalistic, more opaque aspects of how a system might function. Bureaucracy is supposed to make things clear and fair for everybody. The original title that I had hoped for the book was actually 
Buddhist bureaucrats, but the editors didn't seem to like that. I don't know, maybe it's not sexy enough or something. So it kind of, it got demoted and placed in the subtitle of the book. Um, but bureaucracy is, um, it, it's not surprising. I, I, I don't think it is surprising. It should not be surprising that we think about the Gelugpa in terms of bureaucracy. After all, um, the tradition itself talks about the co-confluence of religion and politics all the time, right? This Chusi uh, Sungtel. And so it's not surprising that, uh, to, that we might analyze this religious group from uh, utilizing a political analytical term. I, you, I rely a lot in this book. Um, I'm very interested in Max Weber, his theories, despite their age. He talks about bureaucracy. He writes extensively about bureaucracy and about rationalization. Uh, the features of a bureaucracy, they, they line up very closely with what we have in the case of the Gelupa. And again, it might not be every one of these criteria of a bureaucracy one finds in the case of the Gelupa, but I do think um, it opens up really productive ways of thinking about how the Gelukba became successful. So, you know, a bureaucracy, a pure democracy, a bureaucracy would have a single hierarchy of offices, a meritocracy, um, impersonal legal norms, i.e. laws and rules. And it's this last one in particular that I think the Gelukba really capitalized on, that is the codification of rules and norms for the administration of and life within monasteries. So yeah, I think that in that is what um, the Gelugpa did, and I and I think it did lead to a certain efficiency, a certain standardization, certain coherence of the group as a group, even as it spread hundreds and thousands of miles across Inner Asia, and it also gave it this appearance of transparency. And fairness, which I think is conducive to recruitment, to uh, recruiting patrons and support. So that 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 is why bureaucracy, I think, is so so important for thinking about the history of the Geluk school of Tibetan Buddhism and of religious groups more generally. Yeah, I really like how you mentioned um, consistency as one of the how it's also a very conducive factor to the spread of Gelupa uh, beyond Tibet. Um, but can you maybe tell us a little bit about um, how you also um, incorporated Weber's, Max Weber's idea of rationalization to discuss bureaucracy? How do you see this as a kind of rationalization in the Tibetan context? Yeah, rationalization is this somewhat difficult concept, I think, to grasp. I, I think a lot of Weber's writing is difficult to grasp. Uh, he's not always the clearest or um, most consistent writer. But my understanding of Weber on rationalization is this. It's a human predilection for creating a meaningful world. And to do that by improving the predictability of the world. And the best way to create predictability in the world is to standardize action, right? To remove those, those opaque, personalistic, whimsical aspects of how a, a system might operate. And we see in the case of the Gelugpa, even before the setting of this book, the setting of this book being the time of the fifth Dalai Lama in the mid-17th century, up through the mid-18th century, this period of really extensive, expansive growth of the Geluk school. Even before then, uh, at the time of its founder, Zongkaba, we see a real, a real interest, a real predilection for creating a predictable path to the life of a Buddhist monk or of any Buddhist. And Zongkaba, if he's remembered for anything, it's he's remembered for creating this extensive path as he would put it, to liberation, to enlightenment, um, starting with the basics of monastic discipline and ethics, and then through stages of study, of scripture, of philosophical understanding, and only finally at the end of that is room made for, is it tolerated to 
uh, really engage in meditation and tantric practice. Right? Those things are important. They're, very, they're, they're at the pinnacle, you could say, of this path to liberation, but they're also the most dangerous and therefore they have to be founded upon and contained within the system of discipline, monastic discipline and uh, philosophical study or scholasticism. And so it's an ordered path um, and it's that predilection for order, for, for very explicit, explicitly stating what it is one has to do to get from point A to point B and for standardizing monastic life and monastic practice. Zonkaba also authored at least two, um, he authored two extant jaik, and for ordering, he was interested in ordering the monastic life so that um, monks did the right thing consistently. That was picked up by later Geluk lamas, hierarchs within the Geluk church, if you will, and um, they too exhibited this, this passion for um, rationalization for standardizing monastic life and monastic administration uh, as exhibited especially in the monastic constitutions that they wrote for not just their own monasteries but monasteries elsewhere across the Tibetan plateau in Mongolia and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for uh, clarifying that and this really useful tool right, for um, you know creating consistency and also um, a rationalized way of promoting the proper uh, way of Buddhism can be found in these monastic constitutions, right? And chapter one of your book traces the development of this genre of text. Um, so how did this genre of text originate? And how did prominent Geluk Lama, such as the fifth Dalai Lama, engineer and transform Buddhist monasticism in Tibet through these texts? Well, the origins, I think, is still really unclear. We don't know exactly where these jaik came from or the idea came from them, although I think it's important to know that there are parallels in other Buddhist places, times and places, including in Indic contexts. So Gregory Chopin wrote about uh, Kriyakaras in an article of his, these um, Indic texts that correspond quite closely to what we what we call these uh, jaik or monastic constitutions. That is, they, they are rules, uh, procedures for how a monastery is to operate according to a particular time and place. Holmes Welsh and Griffith Folk both write about a similar genre called chingwe in China or pure codes. Uh, more recently, Ben Shuntal at Otago University in New Zealand has written some articles about uh, Pali Katikabatas, which are um, really, really fascinating. And um, yeah, so there are these parallels in other places which suggest, points to a possible um, Indic origin to this genre. It's also interesting, I, I don't know exactly why, but that the earliest extant jaik that we have, or monastic constitutions in Tibet that we have, are from the 11th century, but likewise, the earliest Katikabatas are also from the 11th century. Um, there are parallels with secular legal texts, and Berta Jansen has written some about this. So the earliest, again, 11th century, but only one of those, to my knowledge, is extant, and um, it's not even technically for a monastery so much as it is a uh, religious tantric practitioner group. So after that, we go to the 14th and early 15th century, the time of Tsongkhaba and his being the earliest. Then for the next couple of centuries, there are lots of Kagyu, Jaik from the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism, and the, especially in the 16th and 17th centuries. And these are really interesting and I think deserving of more focused study. But um, what distinguishes the later Geluk Jaik from, say, these, these Kagyu ones, is that these Kagyu ones, and most of these early ones, are, are interested mostly in uh, prescribing the rules and procedures of monastic, or of, of meditation retreats, places for meditative practice where tantric commitments, these Samaya, are most important. And 
Buddhists. They're also focused on the Lama, the guru at the center of those communities. When we get to the time of the fifth Dalai Lama and these later Gelu Jaik, we're talking about something very different, qualitatively different. These monastic constitutions are depersonalized and standardized, and they're very much interested in the entire corporate body of, of the monks, of the monastery itself. And they're interested in all aspects of the monastery, not just meditation or retreat, which actually don't really get mentioned much at all in uh, most Gayluk Jaik and most Gayluk monastic constitutions, but rather they're interested in finances, who gets paid what, who's responsible for financing what rituals. They're interested in liturgy, what gets recited, what gets what rituals get performed. They're interested in scholasticism and curricula, what gets studied, um, these these sorts of things. Uh, so the Yelupa really exhibited an interest in standardizing monastic life, monastic administration in a way that other schools never did. And then they also did it in an exp- within this expansion, expansionist um, intention, right, of expanding across the the ta- plateau of Tibet and into Mongolia, what they call um, expanding its liberating umbrella and drawing these other peoples and places within the, quote, liberating umbrella of the Geluk school. The other schools of Tibetan Buddhism didn't really capitalize on that aspect of, of the monastic constitution, despite the fact that they had been writing monastic constitutions um, as early as or even earlier than the Gelupa. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's a very interesting and important point to bring up. And uh, we're going to be talking about how the, the Geluk Lamas also you know, institutionalized Tantra. But before that, um, chapter two of your book reveals how these codes right, in the monastic constitutions were, were actually promoted and exercised. And it's really fascinating to read in this chapter that you identified two unique ideas that these texts emphasized, namely um, the importance of impartiality and the idea of the common good. Um, so how did these ideas help monks, bureaucrats to manage monks and monasteries? And how were these ideas particularly emphasized? The idea of impartiality is sort of one of the hallmarks of a of any bureaucracy, depersonalization. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this is the idea that rules apply to everyone equally. So in the Jaik, the Gelug monastic constitutions, we see officers too being um, subject to these same rules. In fact, sometimes they're singled out as, as really needing to abide by these rules because they're setting an example. And the idea behind creating an impartial system is that the system should be um, a predictable system and one that lives beyond the the tenure of any one individual, right? A, a monastery that is so heavily reliant upon one charismatic individual won't often live much beyond his or her life. And so it's building a predictable system that can outlive that individual. Um, it promotes also an image of trust and of fairness, which I think, as I mentioned earlier, this is conducive to um, a good public a good public image in the eyes of, of recruits, potential recruits, or of patrons. And so we see this notion of impartiality throughout the monastic constitutions that abbots, especially the officers, yeah, that the abbots, the disciplinarians, the gegu within the monasteries need to be impartial and fair, uh, follow the rules, you don't, don't make up their own procedures for how to deal with infractions. The common good, this term ji, um, ji is a term we see in modern Tibetan so, um, associated with the word society, ji sok. Um, mm-hmm. It is kind of the, the, the well, the public in, in modern Tibetan, but the the common, the the many, the people, and this, I think, if I think the Jaik, uh, more than anything, are really about that. They're about specifying what the G, what the common good is, and protecting that common good. And the common good is clearly the body of monks, the monastery itself. 
the, the well-being, the peace, and the longevity of the monastery as a whole over and above any one individual. And these jayik serve to protect the monastery and the body of monks, ordinary monks, from graft and from the personal whims of powerful members of the monastery, like the abbot. Uh, this G, this this common this term, it goes on to be other things. It, it goes on to be uh, one scholar wrote about G or Gisa in Mongolia, where there are clearly funds and endowments, and they're they're that too. Uh, you also have the Giso, which is both an office and an officer within the monastery. But the root of all of these is the common good, what serves the wealth and welfare of the body of monks. And um, so I, yeah, that, that, that's the idea. And I think it's, it's a really, it's a really ingenious marketing tactic because it does serve to promote the image of the Gayluk as one that benefits all. I'm reminded of a quote that's attributed to a former president of General Motors, Motors, who is said to have said, uh, what's good for General Motors is good for the country. Mm. That the idea that the, the institution, although it's a parochial one, it's it's a you know, it is a sectarian one, it, it doesn't actually include all, but nonetheless it promotes this image of benefiting all, and it does so fairly. And again, the system doesn't falter because of any one single individual or monastery. So, yeah, these these monastic constitutions and the Gelugpa in particular really show a passion for for impartiality and for protecting the common good from from the nefarious ways or um, mistakes of any one individual. Thank you. It's very fascinating. Yeah, so um, usually when we read about uh, regulations or policies um, on paper or in text, one often wonders, you know, how things were actually carried out on the ground. Um, so do we know much about how these monastic constitutions were actually enforced? It's a great question. In many ways, I, yes, these are normative documents, right? They prescribe how monasteries should operate. And they don't necessarily tell us then what actually happened. But we know uh, that these were recited regularly at monasteries, pulled out periodically throughout the year by the abbot or the disciplinarian to be recited. We know this is we know this historically from documents, as well as we know that this is the case in today, where these so-called or disciplinary sermons are are still given at monasteries, uh, often based on either either based on and paraphrasing or actually reciting the these jaik at at assembly in monasteries. So they were they were um, operationalized in this way, and uh, yeah, and I think ethnographic observations as well as observations by travelers there in the 20th century, they correspond quite closely to what we see in these documents, in, in many ways at least. And when we talk about the uh, administration and the different offices and officers within the monastery, uh, the system of financing the monastery and of redistributing wealth within the monastery. So I think there's a lot to go on to say that yeah, these do correspond to a reality. They had some actual impact on society. But even if it didn't, I think it's important to just to stop and look at the, the, the amount of time and energy and attention that these hierarchs, uh, beginning, say, with the fifth Dalai Lama, but many, many other Gayluk hierarchs spent on composing and distributing these these monastic constitutions. There is it, it, one often finds them in today in uh, these collected the collected writings, the sumbum of different Gayluk lamas, and they're they're usually found alongside documents pertaining to the history, um, the material um, sacra 
the religious objects of a monastery. So these documents are seen, at least by those catalogers, as, as somehow important to the nature, to the identity of the monastery. And, and I think even if they didn't have that, um, that impact on social reality, it exhibits a real ardent fascination with uh, thinking about and organizing monastic life. Thank you. Thank you for your answer. And um, in addition to regulating monasticism, um, in chapter three of your book, you argue that Gilluk Lamas also took special care to institutionalize Tantra, right? this potent source of um, fast-tracked liberation and also antinomian esoteric ritual practices. Um, so how and why was Tantra a target for institutionalization in the eyes of Gilluk Lama bureaucrats? I was recently going back through some notes of mine from Martin Mill's book, Identity, Ritual, and State in Tibetan Buddhism. And I and I think my that his book was more influential on me than than I had realized. He makes some really important points in that book, um, such as discussing the importance of thonic or local spiritual powers in Tibetan society and the importance of lamas of tantric adepts, of lamas, in negotiating the relationship between Tibetan individuals and societies and those thonic powers. He makes the point that monasteries really can't function without powerful tantric adepts or lamas at them. So one might think about the many rituals that a monastery performs throughout the year, but especially the, the high rituals, the most important rituals, those performed for the protector deities of the monastery or the so-called uh, patron deities of the monastery, such as Holten Lamo um, or Mahakala. And those rituals require a Lama to be present to empower the ritual objects that are offered to the deities. Um, I would add that many of the, many of maybe not, maybe all of the founding myths of monasteries involve a tantric Lama coming and taming the local spirits. And um, of course, most people who study Tibet are familiar with the, the story of Padmasambhava, this tantric adept who comes and tames these thonic spirits across Tibet. But that's just exemplary of this, of this pattern we see everywhere else, where even every monastery, it seems, has such a story where a, a tantric adept comes and tames those local spirits and, and it doesn't just tame them but of course recruits them to the cause of Buddhism and the cause of the Geluk school. So the point I guess the takeaway here is that the Gelupa can't do without Tantra. Um, Jeffrey Samuel, the anthropologist who's written extensively about Tibetan Buddhism, would call this the more shamanic side of Tibetan civilization and it's one that no Tibetan Buddhist could ignore and do without. And so the Gelupa don't, they don't ignore it. They, they, but they institutionalize it. They standardized it. They brought it inside, literally inside, inside these Gupa Datsang, these Tantra colleges. They brought it inside for public consumption and they brought it inside for the common good. Um, the rituals that the Tantra colleges and most of the Tantra rituals performed at the monastery were done for the sake of the monastery, for protecting the monastery. Um, so Tantra wasn't ignored. Instead, it was standardized. It was brought inside. It was tamed for, for the sake of the monastery, the Geluk monastery. Um, and it takes, I think the Gyupa Tatsang is the most, the most obvious form of this taming, of this standardization. Their dates are given to the Tantra rituals that are performed. They're overseen now by officers, right? People with official titles within the monastery. Um, and again, it's done on behalf of the monastery. Mm. Yeah, it almost seems like a domestication process um, of this wild and unmanageable aspect of the Tantra. I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, and chapter four of your book, um, which is entitled The Systematization of Doctrine and Education, now turns our attention to the systems of scholasticism that the fifth Dalai Lama helped to standardize all over uh, central Tibet and even beyond. 
And you point out in this chapter that these standardized monastic systems were then instituted at uh, monasteries well beyond central Tibet into Mongolia and even in places in China. Um, So what aspects of monasticism became standardized under the Great Fifths? Uh, What were the things that they were um, asked or required to study? And what kinds of monastic lifestyles were imposed? And also, how did the system of scholasticism help to expand Galuk influence um, geographically in this kind of empire fashion? The, the fifth Dalai Lama, some of his earliest monastic constitutions, and, and by the way, he wrote more monastic constitutions than any other, than any other figure prior to... Um, prior to the 20th century, save one, and that is another Geluk Lama, in this case, uh, the first Jamyang Shepa from, um, from Amdo. And uh, he, he wrote 18 of these monastic constitutions. Some of the earliest ones were focused on the Mulam Chenmo in Lhasa, that is this great prayer festival where major scholastic debates take place. Um, and another he wrote for uh, Tsetang Monastery associated with the Pakmo Zhu polity of the, of the 14th century, where these debates are uh, understood to have arisen in the first place. And so the fifth Dalai Lama showed an interest in debate um, and in this legacy of the Pakmo Zhu polity. And there he specifies such things as what texts are to be debated what kinds of philosophical texts are going to be debated, how long they're to be debated. Um, He wrote another monastic constitution for what comes to be the the largest Geluk monastery in Tibet, Daebung Monastery. Uh, Berta Jansen has written an article about this, this particular monastic constitution. It's very long and very detailed, and in it one sees attention given to the curriculum, that's to be studied at Jaebong, how debate, the procedures of debate, how it's supposed to take place, uh, degrees that are to be awarded for successful completion of these major debates or defenses, rules regarding classes and attendance. So he showed an interest. And by the way, he wrote constitutions not just for for central Tibet, but also for monasteries in Amdo, in Kham, uh, south of the Himalayas. He was interested there in the same sort of thing and in prescribing and specifying the kinds of texts that are to be recited. And he also was, was adamant that this should be done separately from rituals and tantra, that we need to have specialized institutions for the study of scripture, which is another hallmark of bureaucracy that you create separate offices for separate functions. Um, this this topic was, this uh, this chapter of the book was really fun because uh, like, like uh, the later chapter on liturgy, it, I was able to find and look into monastic constitutions across, across the Tibetan Plateau and even into Mongolia and find replicated this this real um, interest and fascination when with uh, specifying the rules of debate, uh, specifying the curriculum of the monasteries, specifying um, rules for how to award degrees. Uh, so it's the same. We see the same sort of attention given to we could say orthodoxy. What, what one should be studying, what one should believe, uh, how one should be defending that belief through debate from Lhasa, stretching all the way up into, into Mongolia. It's almost kind of like a branding process, right? To create uh, your own kind of curriculum and also how um, monasticism is expected to carry out um, all across Inner Asia. And the liturgy, um, saying together in one voice, is the title of the fifth chapter of your book, which concludes the book. Um, here you argue that bureaucracy cultivates esprit de corps, or this kind of shared sense of fellowship or morale, 
Um, and we also see in this chapter how bureaucracy now is carried out through standardized rituals and liturgy, such as chanting together in, in one voice. Um, so how were rituals and liturgy performed across the Inner Asian Galuk Empire? And how did these kind of systematizations of these bodily religious expressions and practices uh, strengthen the integrity of the Galuk Empire? Just like the case of um, doctrine and education of scholasticism, liturgy gets disseminated across the Tibetan Plateau and into Mongolia in, in the same way. Uh, monasteries get their litany of prayers as well as the style of recitation from other more centrally located monasteries. So I open that chapter with a uh, contemporary example, or two contemporary examples. One is Mati Si, a monastery located in uh, Gansu province, and their reliance upon a liturgy written by lamas from Lubrang Monastery in, um, in southern Gansu. And another example being a small Buddhist temple in Xinjiang, where its liturgy had been written in the 90s, the 1990s, by Chusang Lama, a Lama from, from Amdo. Um, Gunlung Monastery, another major monastery in Amdo, it's, when it was destroyed in 1958, it re, and it rebuilt, it, in the rebuilding process, it had lost much of its traditional practices of recitation uh, how to recite the liturgy, the actual nuances of, of that recitation process. And so it turned to one of its former branch monasteries, Trupsang Monastery, to relearn that. And so I start, I open that chapter with some of these contemporary examples because they're, they're, they're very clear uh, about how monastery and monastic networks are formed through these processes of sharing or you could even say imposing um, liturgies on 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 other monasteries. Um, so I think that one of the things that I think is important to remember, uh, those who've studied Tibetan Buddhism know this, is that there's a lot of movement around Tibet and between monasteries, and the sharing liturgies and sharing debate practices um, and scholastic practices makes it easier, makes it easier to, to travel. So if you're a, a young, ambitious monk from Mongolia, it makes it easier if you've been at a monastery in Mongolia that shares a liturgical sequence and style, as well as um, introduces you to debate practice, it makes it easier for you to then go on to say Gunung Monastery in Amdo, very important monastery in the in the 17th and 18th century, or or to go even farther to go to central Tibet to go to Gomong Datsang, Gomong College of Debung Monastery, and study there. And that's an important fact as well. Um, and it's not one other thing I note I might make is that it's not just the constitutions that are doing this work, but the lamas themselves are very itinerant. We've known this for a long time that. Uh, Buddhist Tibetan Buddhist lamas traveled a lot, and um, they traveled for various reasons. But one of the reasons they traveled was to take up positions as abbots, as officers of other major monasteries. And so we see the same figures being abbot of Lubrang Monastery, of uh, Gumbo Monastery, of Chupsang Monastery, and of Gunung Monastery, all four major monasteries in Amdo, um, thereby helping to oversee and implement a common homogenous system of monastic practice. So back to liturgy, um, this too is what, what took place uh, historically and today. So figures would be sent, unze, uh, the cantors or, or, or singers of a monastery would be sent to a, a smaller monastery, a more marginal or peripheral monastery to introduce there the style of chanting and the liturgy at those smaller monasteries. Um, the fifth Dalai Lama, also wrote extensively introducing um, liturgies at monasteries far and wide. One example, just one example, is that of the Medicine Buddha Sutra ritual, which Stacey Van Fleet has written about. Um, that ritual, we see the fifth Dalai Lama, which he played, a, he played a key role in forming this particular ritual corpus. 
And he made sure in many of his jaik, his monastic constitutions, to specify that that ritual corpus should be performed. And he did that for monasteries in uh, Himachal Pradesh. He did that for monasteries in Kham. He did that for monasteries in Amdo. And so this is how this is how the common liturgy, the common ritual program, gets disseminated. Um, it's also important for conversion. So some of these monasteries in Kham, for which the fifth Dalai Lama was writing these liturgies, were previously Sakya or Nyingma monasteries. Um, James Gentry has written about a a Nyingma monastery in Zhang in, in uh, Western Tibet that likewise went through such a conversion process. And it too, that conversion process too, involved the use of a jayik, of a monastic constitution and the, the fifth Dalai Lama specifying uh, new liturgical requirements to be performed there. And so these are some of the ways I, one of the things that I found, yeah, one of the things I found most exciting in this, in this chapter is that it allowed me also to drawn experience I had while a postdoc at the University of British Columbia, where I worked on a project on um, the evolution of morality and cognitive science of religion and how that might be applied to the study of religion, how cognitive science might be applied to the study of religion. And there's some really great um, work done, uh, controlled studies done on the, the effects of ritual on cooperation, on cooperation between members of a group or members of society. And, and, and I think it points quite clearly to how a common program of recitation and ritual can contribute to greater cooperation, a greater sense of belonging to the same group and, and, and to loyalty, um, and also to a, a sort of acquiescence or a greater acceptance of orthodoxy of orthodox interpretations of doctrine mm -hmm. fascinating yeah that would be a really interesting kind of approach to take to study um this kind of uniform uh, religious practice right through the body kind of almost in a way disciplined to the body um i was wondering were there um instances or specific cases where certain individual monasteries on this galuk network um, resisted these kinds of prescribed practices. I was I was just thinking about this book um, by Carolyn Humphrey and Horobatra Ujit, um, A Monastery in Time, uh, The Making of Mongolian Buddhism. So in this book, Humphrey is tracing this really specific monastery in Inner Mongolia called the Murgian Monastery and how they resisted right, the lingua franca of Tibetan by using Mongolian to... Uh, conduct all of their um, Buddhist um, liturgical services and chanting. Um, so I was wondering, were there other kind of instances where um, very unique individual practices took precedence over this larger prescribed one in individual monasteries? There are, um, well, on the nature of, on the question of um, Mongolian language liturgies, I, I think that's a really fascinating area of inquiry. There are Mongolian language mo uh, monastic constitutions. I have not looked at those, but there are there are those, and then there are also Tibetan language monastic constitutions for Mongol monasteries. And so both both things were taking place, and uh, whether one reflects a certain resistance or not. I, I can't say, but yes, I do think there are other instances of this. And one sees this, for instance, where there's a powerful Lama at a, you know, what is supposed to be a maybe subsidiary monastery of a more centrally located monastery. But that powerful Lama decides that he wants to you know, leave his fingerprint on the liturgy of the monastery. And so I'm thinking, um, about Tuguan Lama, an important Lama from, from Amdo, who also became associ closely as associated with the Qing court. And likewise, uh, the Sumpa Kempo, Sumpa Kempo, he had several temples and monasteries in Amdo. And in both cases, they, they would sometime, 
I don't know if it, resistance is the right word, but they would definitely um, include in their liturgies texts, hymns that aren't part of a more standard liturgy found elsewhere. So it might be hymns, for instance, to the Tuguan lineage, um, especially if it's at his own, the monastery where he resides most of the time. Thank you. Yeah, it's super fascinating. Um, and the concluding chapter of your book um, invites us to reflect kind of methodologically, right, on why religious institutions are often overlooked by scholars of Tibetan Buddhist history. Um, so what would you say uh, the reasons are for this? In, in, in the concluding chapter, I write that basically institutions are too worldly, quote unquote, for many scholars of religion, right? They're not they're not uh, these, when we talk about institutions, well, we're not talking about the things that might interest us, like philosophy or like meditation. Um, but as I said earlier, I think that's sort of silly in the case of Tibetan Buddhism, because Tibetan Buddhism is one of these traditions that says, quite frankly and explicitly, that it's a tradition where those boundaries between the so-called secular and the so-called religious are erased. And so... I think that it has to do with a sort of inertia within the discipline, um, an inertia that's been studied and uh, critiqued already by others. Um, but I, I, there is a recent paper in the JAR, in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, September 2020 issue, on the so-called corporate form. And this article by Levy McLaughlin and others uh, they, they write a, a that they call a manifesto, really s saying that we as scholars need to give more attention to the corporate form. And what's implied there is that, in that article, is that our attention has been either, or, or our focus, you could say, our, our analytical focus has either been too narrow or too wide. Too narrow, meaning we're focused exclusively on individuals, on individual luminaries who are accomplished philosophers or meditators or both, or too wide in the sense that we've looked at the state or at ideology. But in between those two exists organizations, collectivities, institutions, the corporate form. And this, they argue, is a really uh, productive middle ground. A lot, of, a lot of things happen in that middle ground. This is the middle ground between the individual and the state, between the public and the private, it's a site where individuals come together and when and they bring together their competing ambitions. Um, it's a site where individual subjectivities are challenged and shaped. Um, it, it, it is a middle ground that today uh, comprises things like corporations. And so this is a manifest, there, theirs is a manifesto that really calls upon us to pay more attention to these these big institutions that do a lot of work um, and have somehow evaded our attention up till now because I, of our interest in th these more private or, or localized individuals or the more abstract state or ideology. Thank you. Yeah, that's a lot to think about. And that's a really um, a great paper, by the way. Um, um, the, the paper on the corporate form yeah. of religion that we all need to kind of keep um, thinking about, definitely. And um, actually, scholarship on Guluk Buddhism, right, going back to our, our main topic of the book, um, has grown considerably, right? Recently, there's so many great books coming out um, in the past few years, yours is included, of course. Uh, but what new approaches um, to the study of Guluk Buddhism would you like to see scholars take on in the future? Well, one example I think is uh, just to speak about something that I'm more familiar with, monasticism, monasteries and monks, there, there's still a whole lot of really basic things we don't know the answers to. For instance, uh, I mentioned a moment ago, Martin Mills, he, he in his book writes that ordination is always overseen by a dulku, by an incarnate lama. And... Um, I suppose that may be true. It wouldn't surprise me if that were true, but I, I don't know that that's true. I don't know um, how we would know that that's true. But we don't. The point is, is like we. I don't think we really know 
all that much about ordination. Um, it's also widely said that most monks in Tibet were novices, Getsul or Shamanera, and not fully ordained monks or Bhikshu, Gelong. Um, I, I, I think that's probably true, but again, it's how do we know that that's true? And if it is true, why, why is that the case? And I can go on. There's there's this status of Warmarapshung uh, or Barmarapshung, this sort of intermediate renunciant, which I, I don't quite know what that entails and why it exists. Um, and there's other aspects of monasticism that we don't know about, um, some of which I kind of skate around in my own book. So this term gundak or owner or proprietor of the monastery, which comes up in, in my book, um, th this is usually a lama who has some, he, he's associated with either founding the monastery or has, he's the most powerful incarnate lama at the monastery and therefore exerts a certain authority there. But what, what are the kind of, what is that authority? What are the ownership rights or proprietary, proprietary rights if there are any that exist there? Um, Gunlock branch monasteries, again, it's something that comes up in the book, but is still really poorly understood what exactly constitutes a branch monastery. And I would say the, the thing that's most interesting about monasticism, but about which we know the least, is liturgy. I, I really enjoyed writing the chapter on liturgy, but it was challenging because there's so little secondary scholarship on the subject. But I think an ethnomusicologist could go and write about the different chanting styles that exist between monasteries and the connections that are um, reflected there, um, or about the history of liturgy and about, for instance, these breviaries, these chuju, that are compilations of uh, rituals and recitations to be performed at a monastery. And I, so I think it'd be great to see more work on that front. But I, one more thing, if I may, I, I would think there's room too, not just for um, new content, but new methodologies. And I would like, I, I think it's important. Many of us are at universities where we also have other responsibilities like teaching and, and service or one has families. And so collaboration, I think, is crucial to really making any headway through the thousands and thousands of pages of Tibetan texts that are now available to us thanks to groups like um, the BDRC, the, the Buddhist Digital Resource Center. So I think, I don't know exactly what that collaboration might look like, but I think collaboration is crucial. I think collaboration also with colleagues in Tibetan colleagues, Chinese colleagues, other colleagues in China, elsewhere is also really important. Thank you. Thank you for sharing these really inspiring words. And I definitely agree with you. I think collaboration is um, necessary in a way, right? Because when you deal with Tibetan Buddhism, you deal with multiple multiple language sources, right? And, and you need a team in order to, to really kind of um, go through these archival materials thoroughly. That's right. Um, so thank you for... Thank you for sharing these words. Um, we do have one final question for you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your current projects that are going on? And also, what would be one book that you would recommend to our audience? Sure. Well, right now, I am simply working on two smaller projects, both of which I began several years ago, but haven't, haven't yet drawn to a close. One is a social network analysis of two important lamas from Amdo, Guntang Gunchok Denbejume and Tuguan Losan Chuginima, these two luminaries from that period who overlapped in certain ways in their travels into Inner Mongolia, the patrons they approached, um, the places they visited, um, but little is known about about those social networks that 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 overlapped there. And so I, I was inspired several years ago by an article that Marcus Binghamheimer had written on social net, network analysis of some, uh, some medieval Chinese Buddhist monks and finding connections between groups um, through these, these different methodologies. And so that's one project I, I have that's ongoing. And another, again, one that I started a long time ago, but haven't really, haven't published on is I, one of the more interesting uh, 
uh, monastic constitutions is one written by the third Jang, Jangya incarnation, Jangya Rope Dorje, for a, a Mongol monastery in Alasha, known as um, Barunghait or Gandengeling or Pendegapsuling. And uh, I write about, actually write a few pages about it in the book, but I haven't done much else with it. And there's a scholar in Inner Mongolia University, Chin Sachin, who, with whom I traveled once to the monastery, and he, he has written extensively about that monastery. And so I'm hoping to uh, do something with him to uh, publish about that, about that monastery, but also about that monastic constitution. Exciting. Wow, thank you. Yeah. Oh, as a book recommendation. Um, so I don't know if this is a disappointment, but my, my recommendation has nothing to do with Tibetan Buddhism, although it does have to do with religious studies. I recently read a work of nonfiction uh, by the journalist Ariel Sabar called Veritas, um, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus's wife. And I read it, I just read it over the winter break. Uh, in preparation for teaching a course here at Colgate on the world's religions. And it's a fascinating read. I can't recommend it enough. Um, if one has any interest in, uh, in understanding how academia works, these questions around what, what constitutes truth, um, questions about, well, I, I think it demonstrates really well what makes, um, what makes scholarship so difficult. Um, and it's also just an amazing work of, of journalistic investigation. Uh, the, the author gets, gets you in, in 300 pages into the history of papyrology and the early gospels, early Christianity, but he also turns to what is forgery, um, the history of the church. And finally, again, it, it comes to these questions of, of academia and the responsibility we have as academics, um, as religious studies scholars, to to truth. It's about. I should have. I should have prefaced the whole thing by saying it's also about a major event that took place about eight years ago. Karen Karen King at the Harvard Divinity School, where she um, she publicized a what was alleged to be an early um, manuscript purporting to, to purporting to have Jesus describing his wife, mentioning his wife. And it turned out to be a forgery. Um, but Karen King was really steadfast in, in supporting it. And so the book gets into, you know, why, how did that happen? How did one of the most celebrated scholars of early Christianity come to support uh, this, this forged document in the face of in the face of growing skepticism about the document. Hmm. Wow, this sounds like a really fascinating book. I'm, I'm definitely um, putting this into my reading list. Thank you for your recommendation. And, and we're, I'm really excited about your other two projects, um, especially the one on network analysis. I think um, incorporating digital humanities methods into the study of Buddhism and especially Tibetan Buddhism is definitely something very exciting to look forward to. So thank you. Yeah, yeah my pleasure. Great. Um, I think I've taken up enough of your time today. And thank you so much for, you know, um, taking uh, an hour out of your busy schedule to talk to us, to share with us your wonderful book. And I urge our listeners to go out and pick up a copy. Well, thank you very much for your time and for um, taking the time to read it and, and ask questions about it. It's It's been fun. Thank you. All right. Until next time. All right. See you then.